continuing with the series of Faith Toward God. This is the last teaching in this particular series. And uh, the topic of today's discussion is hindrances to faith. We're going to have a look at uh, what are the hindrances that actually prevent us receiving from God, prevent our, our faith from actually working. And uh, the, the text verse that we've always used for this whole series is in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Scripture says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And so, faith toward God is the second of the two, uh, of the six foundational doctrines taught to the body of Christ. And the two uh, doctrines um, that were taught most consistently by the Apostle Paul to the church was the doctrine of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And those are the two doctrines that we should have, all of them, we should have a very clear understanding of. But those two doctrines we really apply to our lives for our Christian walk so that we can uh, accomplish that which the Lord has called us to do in our Christian lives. And so today we want to have a look at what actually hinders our faith from working. And there are two main areas that we can pick up in Scripture um, that affect our faith and prevent our faith from um, working for us. And the first is uh, doubt and unbelief. And then the second area is walking out of love. And so we're going to look at those two areas today. Um, and we're looking at doubt and unbelief as the first uh, area. And Jesus is always our example. We always look to our Lord Jesus. The scripture says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we should always be looking unto Jesus. Uh, he came, he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Um, and so our Lord really put himself out there as an example as to how we should live. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so Christ is our our ultimate example. We should always look to the Lord Jesus Christ in order to benchmark that which we do in our lives. Are we doing, um, is this as our Lord would do it? It was a, a, a thing that used to go out many years ago um, and you used to ask yourself the question, would, would Jesus do what I'm doing? And there was a, you know, a question that people asked themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that because actually it's not a bad thing. Um, you, we also, you know, Jesus is our Lord, He is our Savior, He is our God, um, but He is also our older brother. And he, he dwelt on the earth as a man, just like you and I dwell on the earth as, as men and women of God. And so He was confronted with like passions like we're confronted with. He went through everything that we go through. Jesus, the Son of Man, went through those exact same things. In fact, there's a lot that, if you go study scripture as to what actually transpired in our Lord's life, uh, that we don't really uh, realize what he went through. Um, and I don't want to go through that kind of detail today, but the point is, is that that's why he is a, a faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, in that he, the Bible says he's not a high priest who cannot be touched with our infirmities. The reason he can be touched with our infirmities is because he was exposed to those self-same infirmities. Um, he overcame them in that he never committed any sin. And so he walked the earth as a perfect man, uh, well-pleasing to the Father. 
And because of that, he was able to uh, take upon himself the, the sin of the world. And he became the, the spotless Lamb of God who was uh, sacrificed for our sin. But in his life leading up to the cross, because he was born in the earth to die, and he knew that right from the time that he came into the earth. But in his life, he lived life as a man. And he lived life with exactly the same weaknesses that we're exposed to. He overcame those weaknesses and he enables us to overcome those self same weaknesses. And so from the, the point of view of having a look at how um, what hinders our faith, we can look at the life of our Lord Jesus. Now, he didn't have doubt and unbelief because we're looking at that particular aspect right now. But we can look at his ministry and see how doubt and unbelief affected his ministry. Um, and that is just going to clarify, clarify for us the fact that it is doubt and unbelief that affects our faith, that prevents our faith from working. And just as you know, we, at the outset of this teaching, we've said that it is only by faith that we can receive from God. And there's no other way to receive from God. Uh, you can go through Scripture as much as you like. Even when we go to the Lord and ask Him, ask him for His mercy, you have to believe that He will be merciful to you in order for you to go to Him to ask for His mercy. And so we can only ever receive from the Lord by faith. It is only really by um, un unbelief and doubt that prevents us from receiving from the Lord. And so doubt and unbelief is the, the key element to preventing our faith from working. And so let's have a look at our Lord's life and uh, that'll give us some idea as to how doubt and unbelief prevents um, us receiving from God. Acts chapter 10 verse 38, the scripture says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked on the earth, his earthly ministry, because he was a man, don't forget the scripture says, our God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. He has Jesus from Nazareth, he was a man, and God anoints him uh, with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he's, he's anointed by God to go out and to do good and heal all who are oppressed by the devil. This is the will of the Father for the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, in, in the book of Psalms, the scripture says, uh, I have come to do your will, O God. In the book, it is written of me to do your will. And so Jesus knew what the will of the Father was for his life. Remember when, in, in, uh, when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, uh, we see uh, an example of the Lord preaching to that town. Um, now, that wasn't only in that town that he preached, but he took that text out of Isaiah where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me uh, to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the sick and to uh, cast out, well, he didn't say cast out demons, but that particular passage of scripture our Lord quoted. And that, that's in line with Acts chapter 10, verse 38. For the scripture says how uh, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Uh, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So that was God's uh, mandate for the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth. Go into the earth, preach the gospel, tell people that you're anointed by me to do this. And those who will believe your, your word, your preaching, 
and will receive from you um, will be blessed of me in that I will heal them through your hands. Um, because Jesus did not heal out of his own power. Jesus had no power at all to heal. It was the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, the works that I do, um, you shall also, but he says, my Father in me doeth the works. And so Jesus was not the one who was doing the works. It was God the Father by the Holy Spirit in Jesus who was doing the works. Jesus was a fellow worker together with God. So Jesus made his earthly temple, his body, available to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he went out and he preached and he laid hands on individuals. But it was God the Father who was, by the Holy Spirit, working with him, a line granting that signs and wonders could be performed through his hands. And that's exactly how our Lord Jesus works in the earth today. And remember our Lord said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so God anoints men and women. We have no inherent, inherent power of our own dwelling within us. We are just normal men and women. But we are used of God, and so we make ourselves available to God. We are fellow workers together with God. And so we do in the natural, and God does in the supernatural. You know, we, we speak the word of God, we lay hands on individuals, and God works together with us in that he then makes his supernatural power available, and he does the supernatural works through our natural works. Okay, And so Jesus operated in exactly the same manner. He was anointed by God the Father. And that is what the mandate on his ministry was. Now, he, he came ultimately to die on the cross and bear the sin of the world. But leading up to that point, uh, for the two-year period that he ministered on the earth, that is what he did. And he only did it when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. For all of his life, from the time that he was born up until the time that he was uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit after John's baptism, the Lord never performed one single miracle. There was no uh, tangible power of God being made manifest through the Lord's ministry. In fact, no one even um, what's the word, um, suspected that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact this anointed prophet of God, the Son of God. Now Mary and Joseph had been told when he was before he was born uh, by the angel Gabriel that Jesus was going to be the Son of God. Mary had more of an understanding than Joseph had because Mary had had an open vision. Gabriel had come into the home and had spoken to her as I'm speaking to you now, except obviously not through the video camera, but uh, he, he spoke to her as a, a one person would speak to another person. And so she had a very powerful encounter with the angel Gabriel, and he spoke to her about uh, the Lord Jesus being born um, in her, uh, through her. Um, Joseph doesn't get that degree of, of um, difficult uh, to, to put it across, but Joseph gets a, receives a dream from the Lord, and Gabriel appears to Joseph in his dreams. And so Joseph does not have that uh, open encounter with the angel. And so just those two individuals are the only two. All right, obviously now the two prophets, um, 
and I'm really digressing a little bit here, but anyway, the, the two prophets, when, the, when Joseph and Mary come to the temple to present the Lord uh, before God the Father after her 40 days of uh, having to wait until she was cleansed, and then as, as the law required that every male who opens the womb has to be presented before the Lord. And so they come to the temple, they present the Lord Jesus, um, he's 40 days old, um, to, the, to the, the Lord. And then you have uh, Simeon, the prophet, coming in. And you also have uh, that the, 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 the elderly lady. Um, offhand, I can't think what her name was, but she was also the prophetess. And they come in, and God had already dealt with them about Jesus being the Messiah, and they recognize him as being the Messiah. Um, and they go out and tell other people about him. But by and large, no... Definitely, in, in, his, in the town that he grows up in, which is in Nazareth, he goes to Nazareth at the age of four, um, and he's there up until, just before his, his earthly ministry begins, the family moves to Capernaum. Um, for whatever reason, the whole family moved to Capernaum. And from there, the Lord went up to the Jordan to be baptized by John in, in, in the Jordan River. And then he goes and he starts his public ministry. But all the time that our Lord is growing up in that hometown of Nazareth, nobody suspects that he is somebody special. There's no indication at all when he goes to, to school with the kids and when he's a young a youth, a teenager, and when he's a young man and when he's working with Joseph in the, in the carpentry business, and he's got all of these siblings that are growing up with him. Uh, he's got four brothers that he grows up with. He's got three sisters that he grows up. Comes out of a big family. Um, nobody suspects that this is the Son of God. Nobody even suspects that this is a prophet of God. Jesus does not display any evidence to anyone that he is who he is. He grows up absolutely in a, a normal environment and walks as a normal um, person in that environment. Now, he walks a very pure life, okay? But the Bible talks about the fact that even from his youth, he was persecuted. And that is because, and, you know, uh, the, uh, Paul says it, he said, you know, if you desire to live a godly life, he who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Simple as that. This world does not take kindly to those who live godly lives. And they ridicule those people who live godly lives. And they, they, they torment them. And you know, there's just a lot of um, antagonism that comes out of, out of the world to those who live godly lives. Now, our Lord lived a perfect life in that he lived a godly life, all right? You need to understand the difference. So he lives a perfect life in that he's living a godly life before everybody. And so everybody recognizes that this is a good man. The Bible says that he grew in favor with God and with men. And so you know, they recognize that you know Jesus doesn't tell lies. Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus prays. Jesus, you know, and so... I'm sure a lot of the moms in that town would say, if only you could be just like your, your friend Jesus, you know, talking to their, their young children. Why can't you be, behave like Jesus behaves? And so when Jesus gets to school the next day, the other kids would have a go at him. Yeah, I got into trouble because you're such a goody, good, uh, good, what do you call goody two-shoes, whatever you call it. Um, and now my mom's having a go at me. And so our Lord lived a perfect life. All right, that you need to understand. But 
He never displayed any evidence of him being the son of God or even called to be a prophet. Remember John the Baptist, right from the start, everybody knew he was called to be a prophet. It was widely known that this man would be used of God. It was not widely known that Jesus would be used of God. Only, as I said, his two parents, uh, Joseph and Mary, uh, had exposure to that before he was born. After that, nothing else, nothing else ever is said into their lives, um, except obviously when they went to the temple on that one occasion. That this um, man, this, this boy that they're bringing up, is destined to be uh, somebody great in the kingdom of God. So he displays nothing like that at all. So much so, now look at the evidence given to us in Scripture. When our Lord, and I'm really digressing, and I trust we're going to have time to get through all this now. Um, when our Lord turns 12, every year the family goes up to Jerusalem at the Passover, and they celebrate Passover. They're a good Jewish family, and they, they, they go to shul every um, a Sabbath, and they keep all of the feasts. And the scripture says in, in Passover they went up, but I guarantee you they went up for the other feasts as well that they had to go up for. But on this particular occasion, our Lord is 12 years old, and we know the account where he stays behind, and they, the family moves on, they go back to Nazareth, and mom and dad think that he's in amongst uh, with the other kids somewhere, and a, a day later they find out he's not there, so they leave the rest of the family with friends, and they go back to Jerusalem to go look for the Lord. They find him in the temple three days later, and he is communing and speaking with the theological professors of his day and talking about the Word of God and talking about the things of God. And those theological professors, and I call them theological professors because these were the, 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 the scribes of the day. These were the ones who were really um, in the, had more understanding of the Word of God than most. And they would teach the, the, the young rabbis. Remember, Paul said he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel would have been one of these uh, rabbis. And Paul, as a young uh, boy, came to Jerusalem to study the, uh, the, the, the Hebrew uh, Judaism so he could become a rabbi himself. Um, and so at the age of 12, our Lord is in the temple and he's listening to these knowledgeable men of God speaking about the word of God. And he asks questions and he makes comments. And these guys who really know the word of God backwards, kind of, so to speak, they're astounded with his knowledge and his understanding of the word. Okay, they're astounded. Now, that is a scenario where our Lord does display his understanding of the word of God and his knowledge of the word of God. In his hometown of Nazareth, he doesn't do that. It's not a case of when our Lord is growing up that his knowledge of the word of God is so profound that everybody goes to Jesus to find out the local rabbi. Uh, gets Jesus to get up there and to preach on, on, on a Sabbath because Jesus is the one who really knows the Word of God. If you want to know anything about the Word, go to Jesus. He really knows. He doesn't display that. He keeps that to himself. The only time we see him displaying that is in that one time in Jerusalem to strangers, to perfect strangers, people who don't know him. Okay, But when he goes back to Nazareth, 
He, he doesn't display that anymore. He, he, he has the knowledge, but he doesn't reveal that. He doesn't show people that he really has uh, an understanding of the Word of God far more in-depth than anybody else. He never displays that. And you say, well, where do you get that? Well, when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he preaches for the very first time in that synagogue, he'd never done it before, he preaches for the very first time, they're astounded with what comes out of his mouth. They're astounded at his knowledge of the Word of God because he's never displayed that in all the time that they've grown up with him and known him, which is one of the reasons why they really are offended at him because where did this guy get all of this knowledge? I mean, he was a carpenter. Uh, he worked with the carpenters. How does he get all of this knowledge now? So it took them completely by surprise when our Lord stepped out into his public ministry. He had never displayed any of it when he was growing up in his hometown of Nazareth. And so that kind of brings us back to the point that I wanted to get across to here, um, in that we were wanting to have a look at, at Jesus and his encounter in his hometown of Nazareth, because this is where the crux of the matter comes out in his ministry, where doubt and unbelief prevents his ministry from operating. Now, get a little bit more background before our Lord comes to the, his hometown of Nazareth to preach the Word of God for the first time. Um, he has been preaching in Capernaum and other towns up until that time. He's actually even been preaching in Jerusalem. In fact, that's where he launches his ministry. He launches his ministry in the city of Jerusalem at Passover. Um, he doesn't launch his ministry before that time. I'm talking about his public ministry now. Um, if you look at the timeline, what happens is um, our Lord goes up to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now I'm going to throw out some stuff, but it's in the Bible. You, you can you pick it up yourself. You go study the Word of God. He goes up to be baptized by John the Baptist. He goes up during the uh, Feast of uh, Lights, which is the cleansing of the temple. It's at that time that our Lord goes up to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, when he goes up, that's when the break takes place in the family. Um, because up until this time, Jesus has been completely... Um, <sighs> ...obedient to mom and dad. Look, he's very old. When he's, very old he's, he's in his late 30s by now. And he has been, you know, he's been obedient and, and he, there's been no disruption in the family. But now he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. That does not go down well with the family at all because John the Baptist is not accepted by the majority of the religious Jews. Okay? He is accepted by a lot of the, the, the sinning Jews. Um, and a few of the, the religious ones also uh, go to uh, be baptized by John the Baptist. But there was an, a, an instruction that went out at that time that anybody who accepted John the Baptist's uh, ministry will be taken out of the synagogue. Um, and that's in the Bible. And so Jesus bucks the, the, the trend and he goes up to be baptized by John the Baptist. That does not go down well with the family. Anyway, he goes up, he gets baptized by John the Baptist. He then goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, he comes back in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, at that stage, begins to have uh, the disciples start to follow him. And the first two disciples that follow our Lord Jesus is John and James. Those are the two uh, that are 
that follow our Lord when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they follow him and he turns and he said, What do you guys want? And they said, Rabbi, where are you stay? And he said, Come and see. And they spend that afternoon with him. Then they go back and they go first go tell James's brother, who's Peter, that they found the Messiah. Then obviously John goes and tells his brother. And the disciples start being added to the Lord. And our Lord stays in that area for a little while, but then he moves to Cana. He says, I need to go down to Cana of Galilee. I, he has to go and attend a wedding. It happened to be the wedding of his sister. He goes down there and there he performs his first miracle. That's the very first miracle he performs. And that is after he's been baptized with the Holy Spirit and he's been tempted in the devil uh, in the wilderness by the devil for the 40-day period. Um, but that he performs almost um, without anybody knowing, because nobody knew about that miracle except the servants who filled the water jugs. Um, nobody else knew. His disciples knew because the Bible says they saw the miracle and they believed in him, but nobody else knew about it. And I'm sure the Lord told them not to tell anyone because they, quite often our scripture, the scriptures talk about the Lord says, don't go tell people about this particular thing. After the, the miracle in Cana of Galilee, they then go back to Capernaum. Him and the family go down to Capernaum and the disciples, some of the disciples that are with him. Then the Bible talks about the fact at Passover they go up to Jerusalem. And it is then that our Lord launches his, his public ministry for the very first time. And he begins to preach the gospel for the very first time and perform miracles in the city of Jerusalem. Um, and then he goes, around, goes to Capernaum and there's more miracles performed. And so he's been going around to all of the towns now. And he's now built up a reputation as being a prophet of God who is used by God to heal the sick um, and to, to cast out demons. So now he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. Now the, the, the big crunch, because they're now seeing him. They've heard about him now. Okay, Word has got out, and that's why he gets the invite to come and minister in Nazareth in his own hometown for the very, very first time. And so the whole town, by, by and large, comes down to, to now listen to this guy that they all grew up with. And then nobody suspected that he was who he is. And now he's going around and he's saying to everybody, I'm, I'm anointed of God. I'm a prophet of God. And in fact, you know, that you know, he is, he's not saying he's the Messiah, but people are starting to speculate that this is the Messiah. And so there's a lot of animosity when our Lord comes into the town and into that synagogue on that Sabbath day to preach the word of God. Because a lot of the guys are you're saying, you know, just who is this? We, we know him. We've known him for years and years and years. And now this, that doesn't make any sense to them. So he gets up and Luke's account gives it to us of him preaching. And then he meets with just such huge opposition. There is just animosity. I mean, so much so that they tried to kill him. You remember at the end of his sermon, because um, he really uh, rocked their boat. He got them so upset because, you know, it, Let's just have a look at the, the passage of Scripture. It says, And so, Lord has been doing all of these miracles. They know He's been doing miracles. The words are out there. So now they say, Okay, you come and do your miracle here in this town. And that's why the Lord said, You guys are going to quote uh, the proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. That which we've heard done elsewhere, 
do here in your own hometown. So the challenge was really out there. Come, let's see what you can do. You say, you, we've heard you can do all this stuff and we want to see it because we don't believe it because we know you, we grew up with you. And so now you're trying to come and tell us that you're a prophet of God, uh, anointed by God, um, don't believe a word of it. And so our Lord does lay his hands in that town. He preaches uh, from the word of God firstly. Uh, he gets their backs up on that issue. And then they challenge him. All right, let's see what you can do. And so he, he lays hands. On, the Bible says he laid hands. On, let's look at the scripture in verse Mark chapter 6, verse 5 and verse 6. He says, now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. All right. And so he laid his hands on a few sick people. And if you go look at the scripture, the Bible talks about the fact that they were, uh, the translation talks about there was nothing really wrong with them. They had minor ailments. So he could do no mighty work there, the scripture says. Now he could do no mighty work there, uh, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Because there was such unbelief in the, that congregation. They just did not believe him. And so our Lord puts the challenge out there. He says, guys, back in the days of Elijah, there were many widows living in, uh, in Israel. But he wasn't sent to one of them, except to the widow in Sidon, I think it was. And she was a, she was a Gentile. And so because she had faith to receive from the prophet. And then he said there were in Israel in the days of Elisha the prophet, there were many lepers, but none of them were healed except Naaman the Syrian. And so he's another Gentile. He gets healed under the, the ministry of Elisha the prophet. And so that really antagonizes them to the degree that they now grab him. That they, I mean, these are the guys that grew up with him. And you mustn't, because don't forget, Jesus grew up as a godly person in their midst. And so, you know, there were some people that really, really hated him because of uh, his, his godlike manner. Um, again, go back to the New Testament. Uh, if anybody desires to live a godly life, he will suffer persecution. And so now it really comes out. And so they grab him and they take, take him up to the, the brow. The, the town is built on a, a, a hill overlooking the, like a cliff. And they want to throw him over the cliff. They want to kill him. And so our Lord just you know, walks through the midst of them and he goes on his way. Um, but that is the, the, the situation that occurs. Now, in that town of Nazareth, there were blind people. There were deaf people. There were paralyzed people. And when our Lord came there, it was the will of God for him to heal the blind in that town, to heal the, the deaf in that town, to heal the crippled in that town. It wasn't Jesus, wasn't saying, well, I'll do it in every other town, but Nazareth, you know, I know these guys, I'm not going to do it here. No, Jesus came, and the scripture says in verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And so he came there to heal the sick. He, that was his mandate given to him by God the Father. And so he came there to fulfill his mandate in his own hometown. And so he was not the one who was preventing the, his hometown of Nazareth from receiving God's uh, healing power 
and his miraculous power. God the Father was certainly not preventing that from happening because God the Father had mandated the Lord Jesus to go into all the world. Um, um, Acts 10.38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, except in his hometown of Nazareth. No, the scripture doesn't say it. All who were oppressed by the devil. And so that was God the Father's mandate in his life. So God the Father was there to heal, Jesus was there to heal, and yet very few got healed and they had very small things wrong with them. And so when our Lord leaves that town, the blind still remain blind, the deaf still remain deaf, and the paralyzed still remain paralyzed. And yet the other towns around our Lord's hometown of Nazareth had even had their dead raised. Um, so what was the hindrance? Well, it was simply that, that they would not believe. In verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And so the, the scripture is so plain that even our Lord Jesus Christ, um, his earthly ministry in that situation could not perform any miracle because of their unbelief. Their unbelief blocked the power of God. Nothing, nothing else blocked the power of God from being made manifest among them simply because of their unbelief. They would not receive from God, and they could not receive from God. And I hope you've understood that that is a very powerful demonstration to us of just how unbelief blocks us receiving from God, um, and, and it prevents us receiving from the Lord. Let's have a look at another scripture where our Lord actually taught on faith, but at the same time he taught about doubt and unbelief in that same passage of scripture, and how it affects us receiving from God. The scripture is in Matthew uh, chapter 21, beginning at verse 21. So Jesus answered and said to them, and our Lord's talking on faith here. Yeah? He says, Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And so doubt is what is going to hinder us from receiving from the Lord. Just as faith will allow us to receive from God, doubt and unbelief will prevent us from receiving from God. And also I wanted to just make the comment here in this passage of Scripture, our Lord uses faith and believing interchangeably. For he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, and then at the end he says, um, whatever you ask believing, you will receive. So believing and faith he uses interchangeably in his teaching. And that is because those two concepts are exactly the same in the Bible. Faith and believing is, are synonymous terms in the Word of God. I know that there's some weird teachings out there that says faith is, is different to believing. And if you believe, you can get this. And if you have faith, you can get that. No, it's always one and the same. That's when people try and... Uh, you know, get hooked up on words and, and Paul says, don't go down that road guys, it just creates confusion and so faith and believing are synonymous terms in scripture but also, what is also synonymous terms in scripture is doubt and unbelief doubt and unbelief uh, are the same uh, uh, concepts in, in the Bible, and so doubt and unbelief will always prevent us receiving from the Lord. For our Lord said, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will do this. And so the, he can he just as easily have said, if you, ha, if you doubt and do not have faith, you, you, you will not receive. Um, and um, whatever you ask in prayer, not believing, you will not receive. And so faith and, and, and believing receives, doubt and unbelief will not receive.
Those are the two hindrances to uh, our faith, doubt and unbelief. Now, it is possible for one to be operating in faith and move into doubt while you operate in faith, to, to step out of faith into doubt. And when you do that, the power of God is cut off. Faith, I think I've said it before, I have said it before in, in past teachings, faith is like the, the, the on or off switch for a light, uh, for electricity to flow. The power of God is like electricity, kind of. And it, it is, if you've ever felt the tangible power of God, it's like electricity flowing through your body. Um, and so it is, it, it, it flows like electricity. It's like, an, and that's the analogy I'm trying to put across here. But in order for the electricity to flow so that the light switch comes on, there's a switch that you switch to on. When you do that, the circuit is not broken anymore. The circuit's now joined and electricity flows and the light switch comes on. And so the power of God is made manifest. You turn the switch off and it cuts the circuit and the power doesn't flow anymore. And so that is what faith really is. Uh, in a very um, brief uh, uh, explanation. It is the on-off switch for the power of God to, to flow and to be made manifest. Faith allows the power of God to flow. Doubt is the off switch. Faith is the on switch. Doubt is the off switch. Belief is the on switch. Unbelief is the off switch. Um, and so that is the, how it actually works. So it is possible to have your your faith working, the switches on, the power of God's flowing, and to switch it off, go into doubt, and cut the power of God. Remember we spoke about Peter when he was walking on the water. His faith was working. He was walking on water. He was going towards the Lord. And doubt comes in, and when doubt comes in, the switch is, is the, doubt, the off switch gets hit, and the power of God stops flowing, and he sinks. Um, so that's a very clear explanation for us on how one can be in faith and then while you're in faith experiencing the miracle of God, while you're in faith experiencing the power of God flowing, move into doubt and cut the power of God. And uh, it stops because faith allows it to flow, doubt stops it. Unbelief stops it. Let's have a look at another scripture that will illustrate this point to us. Uh, which is also quite a vivid account of how this actually works. And that is in Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. Um, scripture says, And when they had come to the multitude, our Lord has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration with uh, Peter, James, and John, a man came to him, kneeling down and to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, there he goes, our Lord loves to bring out these mountains, because he's really trying to get us to, to understand just how much is available to the one who believes. 
Um, but sorry, I digressed again. Um, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Then he tags on. He says, verse 21, However, this kind, this talking about the demon, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Okay, so let's unpack this example, what had happened here. Our Lord is not with the disciples at this point in time. Uh, he's up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he'd been transfigured that night before. And they come in down the mountain and they come up to the disciples. Now the disciples have been there and they have been ministering to the sick. Prior to this, our Lord had anointed each one of the 12 apostles, including Judas, uh, Iscariot, and had given them power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And he had sent them out two by two to go out into the surrounding towns. First he taught them, obviously, he spent time teaching them. And now he said, okay, it's time for you guys to go out. And so he anoints them. He gives them that power. Um, and I, I've dealt with it kind of in the, the teachings on laying on of hands. So he imparts the power to his 12 apostles and he sends them out into the towns two by two to go preach the gospel, to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And that's what they do. And they come back and they, and they give him feedback about the fact that this is what they've done. And then our Lord takes them out and he said, come, let's go rest a little bit. Uh, so this, but later he takes the 70, he's 70 of his disciples. Um, I, the scripture doesn't tell us um, if there were more and he took 70 out of the, the, the whole bunch or there were 70 in total. But he takes 70 disciples. He gives them the same power that he gave to the 12 apostles. And he also sends them out two by two to go into the surrounding towns to preach the gospel, the repentance uh, to, to the uh, people to repent and come to the kingdom of God and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. They go out and they come back and they testify to the Lord, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so they're really getting excited about what, they, what has been happening. And so they, they've, they've performed these miracles. They've gone out into these towns. They've, they've, through their own hands, God the Father has been healing the sick uh, and casting out demons. And so they come back all excited. And our Lord said, don't get excited about that. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And he gives them a bit of a teaching about the fact that he had seen Satan cast out of heaven uh, like the lightning. Um, and so that is the background here, is that the disciples had started to minister the power of God in their own uh, ministry, so to speak. And so they were ministering to the, the sick. Remember when our Lord took them away, uh, because he, they, they, the Bible says that they didn't have any time to eat, because it wasn't only him at that time who was ministering to the sick. It was his disciples as well that were ministering to the sick and praying for them and laying hands on them and getting them healed and casting out demons. And so the disciples had been doing this for a period of time. The scripture doesn't tell us how long a period of time, but it must have been a few months at least. And so they were quite comfortable with performing uh, the works of God. With, uh, when you come to us, we'll lay hands and we'll you know, cast out this demon uh, in the name of Jesus and we'll, we'll lay hands on him and he'll be healed. And so they were used to that, all right? But now one, a situation arises. They come and they want to cast out. The, so this man brings his son, who's an epileptic, 
epileptic, I'll get it right, um, wants to cast out, have his son healed. And so they speak to this demon to come out in the name of Jesus, and nothing happens. Now this is not usual for, this is the first time they've encountered this, all right? Because up until this time, they're very comfortable in casting out demons because whatever demon they come across, they tell the demon to come out of the person and it comes out. And they're used to that. That's all they've seen since Jesus has anointed them to go out and do that. And they've been practicing it ever since. And so they're very comfortable. They have the faith to do this. There's no, there's no doubt in them that when they lay hands on these individuals, the demons come out and the people get healed. Because there's no indication ever, prior to this one, of the disciples coming up short. Okay? There's only indication that they only ever had success um, in the people who believed. Or I remember we, we saw our Lord in his hometown. Couldn't do it because there was unbelief. And so our Lord does make a comment here. He's, he, he makes two comments because they come to him afterwards. Now they, they're a little bit confused because, uh, you know, the Lord comes and he casts out the demon. And so privately afterwards, they go to the Lord and say, Lord, what happened here? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? Because they used to doing it. All right. And this demon didn't go out when they cast him out. And so our Lord makes two comments to them. He said, because of your unbelief, that's the one comment our Lord makes. But then he comes on and he tags on. He says, however, this kind does not go out by prayer and fasting. So what is it, Lord? Is it because of the unbelief or is it because this particular demon doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting? Well, it's a combination of both the Lord is trying to get across to us. How does that mean? What, what do you mean, Lord? How, how is it possible? It's my unbelief. Don't forget, they were in belief when they cast the demon out. They were in faith. There was no doubt in their minds that they would speak to that demon, he would come out. But he doesn't come out. He doesn't move. The demon stays. Okay? And so now we need to reconcile the two statements that our Lord makes. He makes his statement, he said, because of your unbelief. And then he makes a statement, however, this kind, this kind of demon does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So how do we reconcile those two statements? Well, it works on this wise. This particular demon was a very powerful demon. I don't know um, how else to explain it, but there are, obviously the Bible talks about principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, and then there's Satan. And so in Satan's kingdom, there is degrees of authority. Just like in the kingdom of God, there are degrees of authority. And so certain demons have a, a greater degree of authority than other demons. And so it is easier to deal with this, the, the smaller demons than it is to deal with certain demons. In this particular demon instance, um, this demon would only budge for a greater degree of anointing. Okay, because our Lord says it this way. He says in verse 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So now our Lord is not saying you needed to now, if you wanted to cast this demon out, you needed to go uh, uh, to, to, to uh, walk out there and go away and go pray for a while and go fast for a while and then come back and cast the demon out. Not at all. That's not how God operates. What the Lord was saying, you needed to have a lifestyle of prayer and fasting because the, the, the lifestyle of prayer, and, of prayer and fasting has the effect of increasing the anointing upon your life. 
Now the disciples had not spent any time in fasting and very little time in prayer. No time in fasting. Remember John's disciples come to the Lord and say, why is it that the Pharisees' disciples fast and we fast, but your disciples don't fast? And then our Lord says, while the bridegroom is with them, they can't fast. But there's coming a day when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and in that day, then they will fast. So the Lord's disciples have not, have not been fasting at all. Um, and it's been spending very little time in prayer. Uh, whenever you see scripture talking about our Lord praying, he's always on his own praying. The, the disciples might be watching him and, you know, they, our Lord teach us to pray. Um, but there's no real time of, of even when the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord battles to get his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, to pray with him for one hour. He goes away and he comes back after and says, guys, can you even pray for an hour? And so the disciples were not really uh, into praying at that time, and they certainly weren't into fasting. And so the, the, the degree of anointing upon their lives was limited. However, the Lord's life was completely different. Our Lord spent much time in prayer and certainly a lot of time in fasting as well. And so the anointing was on him to the nth degree. And so he had all the anointing required to cast out that demon. The disciples did not have that degree of anointing to cast out that demon. And the demon knew that. And so the demon stood his ground and he did not come out. Now, when they cast the demon out in the name of Jesus and this demon sat fast, he didn't come out. He, 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 he recognized that there wasn't a, as powerful anointing to deal with him as there should be. Um, they stepped from faith into unbelief because they don't recognize that there's something else involved here. They don't know that this demon only responds to one who's been spending time in prayer and fasting. They don't know that. Jesus knows that. They don't know that. And so when they come to ask him, the Lord reveals that to them. And so when they encounter the situation where the demon does not respond to their command, the natural instinct is to say there's something wrong with me now um i can't be I'm, my faith's not working I, i'm the, you know the name of jesus is not working anymore something happened that it's not working okay and so they step into unbelief and it so that, it, that demon is now really in an unsafe ground because now not only are they not praying and fast, coming out of the uh, a background of prayer and fasting, but now they've stepped into unbelief as well. And so nothing that they try and do is going to get that demon to move. And so that is why our Lord says, because of your unbelief, but this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. And so we can learn a, a lesson here. We don't always know what's going on in, in the spirit realm, uh, because we only know in part. We don't know everything. Um, you know we, we know as much as God reveals to us and as much as we can absorb. And, but we're going to encounter situations where uh, it might seem that our faith is not working. Now, in, when we encounter a situation where we're used to seeing the power of God, we, may, we Lord, we do this, we push this button, and I'm, that's not the right way of putting it across. But you, you've, you've followed the, the print, biblical principles, and you know you're in faith, and you're doing what you've always done, and you've always had results. But you might come across a situation where, when, when I'm not getting the result here. The point is, don't now step into unbelief, and thus turn the light switch off. Rather, step back, 
and now inquire of the Holy Spirit, Lord, what else do I need to be doing here? You need to reveal to me what is, what's missing in this situation. It might be that you need to be putting in a bit more time in fasting and praying. Praying, because you're now coming against uh, spiritual wickedness in high places, and those demons require a little bit more of anointing in order to be dealt with. Um, I, I'm just putting it out there, I'm just, because that, that was the case here. This particular demon would not respond unless there was that degree of anointing to cast him out. And Jesus had that degree of anointing, and he cast him out. And so when we, are, uh, when we encounter situations that don't seem to uh, respond to our faith as it has in the past, then don't step into unbelief like the d disciples did. Rather step back and say, all right, Lord, where am I missing it? What, what am I not doing that I should be doing? And then the Holy Spirit will reveal to us, all right, this is what you should be doing in this situation. And so we can go back into the situation with confidence now because, all right, I, I, I see where I've missed it, and that's what I've got to do in order to get my faith to, to produce um, results in this particular area. So it's not a case of um, you need to go get some more faith. Because you've got enough faith to deal, deal with the situation. But there might be, um, you know, whatever it could be. It might even be, uh, you know, the scripture talks about the fact that uh, when we are out of kilter with our, our spouse, that our prayers are hindered. And so it might be that there was a bit of a, a, a spat that morning with your spouse, and that has cut the, the power of God from flowing. And so you need to first go make right there. And now there's no more hindrance there, and, you, and your faith can work for you in the situation. But the point that I want to get across here is that when we come across a situation where our faith does not seem to be working, don't then step into unbelief and say, well, it doesn't work. No, rather go back to the Lord and say, Lord, what am I missing? Where am I missing it? What am I doing wrong? It might be that the Lord just says, you just need to hang in there, and faith and patience will produce the promise. Remember, we, we discussed that in the previous teaching about there is a, uh, a, we do need patience uh, very often in getting the, the promises of God being made manifest in our lives. But the key is always stay in faith and seek further guidance from the Lord and find out uh, from Him what it is that you might be missing. And then you will stay in faith and the power of God continues to flow and the manifestation will materialize. And then the other area where um, that blocks the power of God from flowing in our lives, that hinders our faith, is the area of doubt. And doubt in unbelief, we said, are synonymous terms. So where does doubt come from? Um, let's have a look at the scripture, James chapter 1, uh, verse 6, uh, 7 and 8. We're going to read, but we're starting at verse 6. Scripture says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting. So there's faith and doubting being contrasted to each other. For he doubts, he who doubts, is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Key verse of scripture here. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so doubt is in the mind. And we've dealt with this in previous teachings. Faith is of the heart. Faith is in our spirits. Uh, our spirits can only believe. Um, you go back in previous teachings, I've made that point abundantly clear, that the born-again spirit can only believe it cannot doubt. It has no capacity to doubt. And so doubt arises in our minds. And we do need to recognize that. We need to understand the fact 
that doubt is in our minds and not in our spirits and we need to keep that under control how do we keep it under control one uh, 2 corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 says casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of god bringing every thought not some thoughts every thought into captivity to the obedience of christ and that's one scripture but there are many scriptures that talk about the fact that we have to control our thinking we have to be spiritually minded the bible says that he who walks in the flesh sets his mind on the things of the flesh he who walks in the spirit the things of the spirit translate means he he sets his mind on the things of the spirit um, Paul talks about the fact that if we've been raised together with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on heavenly things, not on things on the earth. And so, and the Bible says, uh, um, be not anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds. And he goes on to say, and Think on these things, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things of good report, if there be any virtue in them, and if there be any praise. Think on these things. And so there's many scriptures where the Bible tells us what to think about. And we control our thoughts. I've spoken about this point before. No one can force you to think about anything. Only you decide what you want to think about. And I know there are people that are bombarded with thoughts um, which they know are wrong. And they know that those thoughts are not from God. And, you know, they, they just seem to struggle to get those thoughts sorted out. And it actually isn't such a, a hard thing to do. Because what did our Lord Jesus do every time Satan came against him in the desert? He said, Satan, it is written. And so the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so when you get bombarded with weird thoughts that are not of God, well, then just stop it straight away and just resist the devil and say, Spirit of doubt, I resist you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I will not think those thoughts, for I'm born of God. And the Bible says that love thinks no evil. I'm born of love. I do not think any evil. And quote whatever scripture comes to mind that is going to just hammer the devil because it is the sword of the spirit and no demon can stay around and listen to the word of god quoted to them they will always flee resist the devil and he will flee from you so you do need to resist those thoughts bring every thought into captivity unto the obedience of christ and so a thought of doubt is never from god god never spoke doubt to anyone and he never will speak doubt to anyone. And your spirit will not speak doubt to you. And the Holy Spirit will not speak doubt to you. And no angel of God will speak doubt to you. And Jesus will not speak doubt to you. The only source that will come into your mind of doubt, thoughts of doubt, are going to come from two sources and only these two sources. The one is going to be your carnal mind. In other words, what you, your carnal thinking what you've always thought as you grew up in this world that has not yet been changed to spiritual thinking. And that's such an easy thing to bring under control because you just stop thinking that thought straight away and you start, start thinking in line with the Word of God. The other thought that a doubt would come is because a demon will try and put that thought into your mind. And you just rebuke him in the name of Jesus and with the Word of God and just say, it is written, um, I bring into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ Jesus my Lord. Doubt is not of God. I will not think thoughts of doubt. And so if you're going to overcome in this area, 
you have to recognize where doubt comes from. It comes from carnal mind and it comes from outside there, Satan's realm. And so just stop it. Don't entertain thoughts of doubt. People say, yeah, but how do you get, I mean, you've got to think about these things. No, you don't. You can think about them in the light of what the Word of God says about them. And so you always think about whatever situation you're thinking about in the light of what God says about it. Not in the light of what, what Satan says about it. Who wants to listen to what he says about it? So he's the God of this world. So that's fine. But greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I'm, from, I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't listen to Satan. I have full authority over him. Um, for I'm in the body of Christ. And Jesus has said very plainly, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go you therefore. I'm in his body. So even if I'm at the bottom to left toe of his body, I still have Satan and all of his uh, um, cohorts under me because I have the authority in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm in him. He's in me. And so I don't listen to Satan. has got nothing to do with my life. He has to listen to me in that he has to do what I tell him to do. Now, I don't go around commanding the devil to do all sorts of things, but I do resist him, and he has to flee from me. It is written. And so when I quote the word of God, Satan has no defense. He's a, he, he has been disarmed. Remember our Lord said that he disarmed him, and he made an open show of him and his uh, um, a, a, angelic guys that hang out with him. He destroyed them, and he's given unto us that power over all of the power of the enemy. And so we, we don't entertain those thoughts. And then your carnal mind, obviously, just renew your mind to, the, to think in line with what God says about the, the situation. Because remember, doubt is the off switch. So Satan wants you to thought, think uh, thoughts of doubt because if he can get you there, he can get the power switched off. If you get the power switched off, God's not involved anymore. Now, now you're on your own because now you've stepped into doubt. The power of God's gone. Because the switch is, you flip the switch. You flip the off switch. And so God can't work for you anymore. Remember Nazareth? Jesus was there to heal. God the Father was there to heal. None of them got healed except the, the ones that have had a few things wrong with them. But no mighty miracle was done there. And who, who stopped that? They did. It wasn't anybody else. It was them. It was their unbelief that prevented the power of God from flowing. And so don't go down that road. Don't entertain any thought of doubt, because the thought of doubt, if you entertain it, it'll switch, I flip that off switch, and that's it, the power of God will be cut in your, in working in your life. And we overcome those thoughts, if they're coming from outside, with, it is written, even if you don't recognize if it's from outside, then just quote it anyway, just say, Satan, he might not be there, but yeah, he'll get, he'll get the hiding anyway. Um, it is written, you know, and you'll know, oh, I better stay away from that person because that person keeps hitting me with, it is written. So a demon, they learn quickly, you know, they know, they know what they, where they can go, where they can't go. And so if they see a believer is willing to entertain their thoughts, whoa, they'll get in there and they'll throw in as many thoughts as they can get in. And so you have to, have to be ruthless about this. Do not entertain thoughts of doubt at all. And then the last area where we want to have a look at that will prevent us, uh, our faith, from operating. This is uh, the last area of what hinders our faith from working. And that is not walking in love. This will always prevent your faith from, from working. It's, uh, it's a given. It's not going to, you, there's no way of getting around it. You have to be walking in love 
if your faith is going to work, work for you. Scripture we'll look at is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. A very simple scripture, but a very profound scripture. Scripture says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. And so faith works through love. If love is not there, faith's not going to work. Your faith will not work for you if you are not walking in love. And so it is so important for us as believers to stay in love. Because remember, why is that? Because our faith, it's our, our faith is toward God. Remember, the doctrine is not the doctrine of faith. It is the doctrine of faith toward God. Our faith is in the supernatural power of God. And so if I'm walking in love, I'm walking in fellowship with God. The moment I'm not walking in love anymore, for whatever reason I've stepped out of love, I've now stepped out of fellowship with God. For God is love. I cannot be walking in uh, hatred in any way outside of love and say, well, I'm walking in fellowship with God, but I'm not going to walk in fellowship with my brother down the, uh, down the road. I don't like him. I'm out, of, I'm out of love. I'm not walking. John said very plainly, you're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You think you are. You're not walking in fellowship with God. And so when I step out of love, I've stepped out of fellowship with God. When I've stepped out of fellowship with God, I've cut the power. That's another off switch. It will not allow the power of God to flow in my life. God um, is love. And we cannot expect Him to be hearing my prayers if I'm walking out of love. Remember, the, the one condition that Jesus taught on with God's to faith is forgiveness. He said in that teaching on faith, in the very next verse of Scripture, He said, but if you have anything against anyone, uh, forgive. That you have any father who can forgive you. And so he's, he, Jesus was really saying, forgiveness, unforgiveness is going, to be, is going to block your faith. It will prevent your faith from working. And unforgiveness is very closely linked with not walking in love. Because if you're not walking in love, you're going to walk in unforgiveness towards somebody. But if you're walking in love, you're not going to have unforgiveness toward anyone. And so walking in love um, keeps the door open. When I walk outside of love, I've now stepped out of fellowship with God. God's not hearing my prayers anymore. I'm not fellowshipping with the Father. I'm not uh, in a place to receive from Him as I should. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And so your heart, your spirit, will always condemn you when you're outside of love. Your spirit will always, your conscience and your spirit together, the book of Romans teaches us, the two of them will either excuse you what you're doing or they'll accuse you, they'll accuse you of what you're doing. I.e., you're doing this wrong, and so your spirit and your conscience will accuse you and say you're out of line, you're doing that wrong. Uh, if I'm walking in love and I'm walking right, my conscience, my spirit are quite happy with me. Go ahead and do what you're doing, Mike, because we're, we're on the same page. And so scripture says here, if your heart doesn't condemn you, then you have confidence toward God. So if your heart is condemning you, you cannot have confidence toward God. If you do not have confidence toward God, your faith, you're not going to have faith towards God. You're not going to be able to believe Him that He's going to meet your whatever requirement that you're asking Him to. Because that confidence is lost. And so your heart needs to be in a place where it's not condemning you in order for you to have confidence toward God. The only time your heart will not condemn you 
is when you're walking in love and you're walking in line with what your conscience is saying. When those two are, are happy, your spirit and your conscience, then you're walking in love, You then you have full confidence before God. There's nothing, there's no, inside of me, Lord, there's nothing hindering me. So, Lord, in full confidence, I come before you in, in, in faith and I believe that you will hear my prayer regarding the situation. And so, love will always bring us into uh, fellowship with the Lord. Walking outside of love will always take us outside of walking in fellowship with the Lord. And so, you have to, if you recognize that you're out of love with, for whatever reason, you need to get back into love as quickly as possible. Don't stay outside. Don't stay because that's the off switch. That's preventing the power of God from being, uh, being made manifest in your life. That's preventing God from uh, displaying uh, His supernatural power that is required in order for us to receive from Him. And so we need to be walking in love. So it's doubt, it's unbelief, and walking out of love. Those are the main hindrances for us, our faith not working for us. And so those, that is how we overcome in those areas so that our faith can freely flow. That, that on the switch should be there all the time. And the power of God should be flowing all the time in our lives. And uh, we're going to end the teaching on that particular point today.